RHP host us. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> do the whole thing. It's just a bunch of noises. It makes sense in my head. This is Four Friends Fight About Film, a podcast about movies and things more important than movies, if we ever find any. We're back after a little R&R to kick off. Roids and Ragers. (laughs) (laughs) Kicking it off strong. Uh, Season three. uh, We took a little break for a while. How long has Gibby been sitting on that? (laughs) (laughs) It's been at 72 hours. Oh, that's not as... I thought it was going to be like 72 weeks. (laughs) Um, So hopefully this will be just like riding a bike. A weird four-person tandem bike. (laughs) Uh, What better way to celebrate than talking about our favorite part threes or third parts of a trilogy? So that's what we'll be talking about today. It's entirely possible that our voices have changed since season two. So to kick us off, say your name and... And what you've been doing with your downtime since the last season. Jordan, kick us off. My name is Jordan. <laughs> <laughs> he developed a British accent. Yeah, yeah welcome back from England. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Thank you. Uh, my name's Jordan. Has my life changed? I moved out of to You Nashville. have the most change amongst any of us. Yeah, probably. I moved to Nashville. I forgot, a fil- I forgot. Feature film? I directed a feature film. I forgot how to podcast. Yeah. I don't know. What else? That's it. Gibby. This is Kyle KT Gibberoon Gibson. And since the last podcast, I've... Wait, Kyle KT? But the K stands for Kyle. <laughs> no, it stands for Katie. Katie. Yeah. Kyle, Katie Kyle Lane Katie. Gibson. <laughs> KTG. Since the last podcast, I've just enjoyed time living, guys. That's key. And my friends and family. And it's nice. I don't, nothing. It's deep. I'm pretty boring. <laughs> Watching TV. <laughs> you drive a Mustang now. I don't feel like you drove that. Mm-hmm. No, I had the Mustang before. Mm. Oh, man. Mm. I was really looking for change there. <laughs> uh, this is Lance. First of all, I want to apologize to you guys for the bitter contract dispute that led to our delay. <laughs> yeah. I finally got my agent back on board. Now so. you get paid Sorry. 10 times more yeah, than the rest of us. I know. <laughs> Sorry. But what have I been up to? 2017 was a pretty horrible year for me, actually. In a variety of ways. I did uh, discover alcohol. That helped a lot. <laughs> uh, mostly. Where did, where did you discover it? In your liquor Rock closet? Rock bottom. Yeah, yeah. At an alcohol store. <laughs> it's been great, though. I, I use it when A-A. I'm driving, when I wake up in the morning, when I cry. It's, it's really good. It's helped a lot. So I'm in a good place. <laughs> My name is Hudson, and I've been prepping for this episode since the last one. <laughs> <laughs> well, that, makes, that makes one of us. Or this yeah. last one, as in like two days ago. What? 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 <laughs> uh, Clearly we suck at this now. <laughs> we're working on it. All right. So we asked you guys uh, a long time ago, back when we thought we were first recording this episode, on Facebook and Twitter for your favorite part three movies. And these are the responses we got. <clears throat> All right. I'll do this first one. This is uh, Sarah Klein. Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. Very few men could believably make Harrison Ford feel small, and Sean Connery does it perfectly. I'm not sure that's the point of the movie. I don't feel like it is either. 
The, there's the, no point to that stupid movie. The smallness or largeness. What? Wait, what? Oh, I'm sorry. We may be talking ooh, about that. Yeah, ooh, we might get ooh, into that we'll later. See. We'll see. We'll, we have more uh, commentary on Indiana Jones the Last Crusade coming potentially. Maybe. I, I, we don't know. I, I, did Sarah walk into the film going, God, I just hope Harrison Ford looks really small in this. <laughs> really? Oh, she he really needs him. to be put oh, in his place. He, yeah. <laughs> he really hasn't commented. But Harrison Ford's getting too big. <laughs> <laughs> big for his britches. Big for his 10-gallon hat? It's not quite no. a 10-gallon. All right. No. It's like a half gallon. Jordan, you want to do this next one? Twilight. 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 That or look who's talking now. Oh, that's from Chad Johnson. Does Chad think that the third Twilight movie is called Twilight, Twilight, Twilight? <laughs> Twilight Part 3. Twilight, Twilight, Twilight. Part also, of the Twilight saga. It would have been better if it had been. Look who's talking. Oh, look who's talking 2. T-O-O was the it's, second one. Yeah, yeah it's 2. And look and who's talking now. now is the third one. Was it like a dog or something talking that? Yeah, I think one? the third one was animals. I didn't know it existed. Because the second one was a baby sister. Although yeah. the toddler was like four in that, and they still had Bruce Willis voice of the toddler. Gibby, uh, this right. is embarrassing. Uh, <laughs> so bored talking about this movie. <laughs> All right, Gibby, you want to Can take we look at one? someone else talking sure. now? Scott Mayer says, Alien 3, only because it was the first one I saw. A decade later, I realized how mediocre it was. After eventually watching... The original two. I'm done, Pardue. I like how Scott starts this <laughs> liking the movie, and by the end yeah. of his own sentence, he hates it. Yeah, like, but this is his favorite is part three. It's his favorite part three. <laughs> and then not 20 words later, he realizes it's not that great. That's good. Mediocre. He's maybe wrong on all accounts. We'll, we'll talk about it, we'll potentially. Get, maybe, maybe, maybe. We'll yeah. All right, Lance. Steve Fisher says, A Nightmare on Elm Street 3, Dream Warriors. <laughs> uh, this is a good movie, actually. It's, uh, yeah. um, the, I enjoyed this one. I don't um, remember that much. Didn't pick it, but this was a That wasn't was a the film. 3D one, was it? Nah. Oh. It was like, was not until like 6 or something. Yeah, I think that was way later. All right, if you want your favorites right on the show, you can leave your comments at facebook.com slash fightaboutfilm or at fightaboutfilm on Twitter. Those are still our handles, right? At least so. I don't know. Nobody <laughs> renew them. Do you have to <laughs> renew them? Yeah, but there. I sold them. <laughs> <laughs> How else were we going to pay Lance's extravagant mm, yeah. demands? What did you guys consider when making this list? Is it hard to come up with great part threes? I just thought of series of movies and then the third entry. Or, or I thought of a a movie that was three parts of itself. Yeah, it's there's, a, it's, there's it's not its all trilogy. that many movies that have a part three, no. so we're, you're limited. There's a, I thought there's a good bit. I didn't, I didn't find this list that hard to come up with. I think I what's either. interesting about this group of films, though, is that, you know, I think some of our episodes, we have some more obscure films. There are one or two of those on here, but for the most part, these are films I think most people have seen. I, and I mean, obviously, the reason for that is because they're franchise films. I mean, you don't get to a part three unless you've right. had some success, well, probably. Without, without a part one and a part two, at least. Well, yeah, but, I mean, you, but, but there has to be some <laughs> impetus to keep making them like they're making money or people are actually seeing them usually. So right. usually these are parts of larger franchise. One films. thing that I really want to do is I, my number threes, I really wanted it to be the best of the series, I, or at least I wanted my number threes to be better, in my opinion, than the first and second films in the series. You have high standards yeah. for your number threes. Wow. Mine wasn't necessarily that, but I did try to look at three different franchises that did their number threes in different ways. I feel like number three is a euphemism for something, but it's not. I know. I keep thinking that too, like some bathroom <laughs> yeah, thing, yeah. but there's not such a thing. No. <laughs> oh, I thought there, yes, there is. It's when you pee and poop at the okay. same time? Well, no. I think <laughs> it involves... Yeah. Uh, but no, I, I think it involves also projectile vomiting. Oh. Oh. <laughs> it's when it's coming out both ends. <laughs> 
Who is it? Where where do these standards come from? Also, for what defi- is there like a Second government graders. agency like the Department of Weights and Measurements like <laughs> records this? All right, all right, Jordan, kick us off with your first number three. I'm going with Alien Three, David Fincher's debut film, which it still kind of blows my mind. So odd. Yeah. You do a ton of giant music videos, and then they're like, "Hey, how about um." Alien 3, that seems like... <laughs> yeah, following shoot. in the shoes of Ridley Scott and James Cameron. Yeah, and then let's give the guy did Vogue. They intentionally picked him because they liked the fact that the previous two directors had been young up-and-comers, which David Fincher was considered at that point. Yeah. The so they wanted to have a third director who was going to become a... And they, they got that part right. Which, they did. It's everything else. Which I love right. the fact that they add uh, uh, swap out directors and add a unique point of view to each of those films yeah. and, and each one does feel very different yeah. you're gonna do a quick summary yeah so um, <laughs> ripley's out there in space and she lands on this planet full of monk well i was gonna say monkey but you were gonna say they, monks, they're like monks, the original, yeah. but they're not actually apes and she lands there and she just so happens to have an alien in tow that she doesn't know about and uh it decides that this time it wants to kill people <laughs> just, just go against its just nature, like yeah. the other yeah. times. It's a strange twist. It's here. You got Clemens. Stop this, Raven. One. I'm stop telling it. you, it's here. Aaron, get that foolish woman back to the infirmary. The main reason I love Alien 3 is that it brings the Alien universe back to its sort of original tone, which I am that guy that hates James Cameron's Aliens because it's so goofy and terrible. But Alien 3 brings it back to this quiet, brooding... Uh, much more interesting to me. Yeah. Less Bill Paxton. In fact, none. Oh, oh. Yeah, not on one frame. Kind of like yeah. the world now. Oh, oh man. God. Is that a zing? I don't know Jeez. what that is. Sorry, Bill Paxton's family. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Thanks for listening. I love Bill Pex. Until now. But I'm not presenting the theatrical cut because it is absolutely undeniably terrible. Instead, <laughs> it's the assembly cut, which was done for the big box set, I don't know, 10 years ago or so. And Fincher was the only director of the from the original four Alien quadrilogy movies that, that refused to have any part in a director's cut. So it's the assembly cut, which was formed from uh, the production notes which it's supposed to be more his vision, but he was not involved still, right? He was not involved. He said, no, like, thank you. Just more but what it, he set out to do. But it's based yeah. on his production notes from actual production. And like the first so. two have famously multiple cuts of the movies. Like right. Aliens has had six or seven cuts from what I recall. And Which James Cameron, for whatever reason, had actually already recut a director's cut before <laughs> the box set ever asked him to because he just can't <laughs> help bored. himself. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Bored in his mountain of money. Yeah. Yeah, I didn't know that this additional cut existed until after I was 15 minutes into the original movie and Jordan texted me and said, oh, no, you got to watch this other one, which I didn't even know was out there. It is. Um, and then so then I watched that, which I enjoyed just the kind of world building. I found the whole like kind of ex-prisoners who decide to stay and be monks on this place really kind mm-hmm. of a fascinating world. Although I kept getting it mixed up because everybody's like bald and white. Well, except, except for Charles S. Dutton. Uh, yeah, he's he's not and well, then, white. He's He's definitely bald. He is bald. (laughs) Yeah. Including, uh, I guess, technically, Ripley is also bald and white. (laughs) She is. Very white. But you can tell her apart. No, but I like like the whole world building of it. And I I like the slow movingness of it for a while. And then it slows down a little too much, I feel like, and gets a little repetitive. I mean, it is a bit like hanging out on a monastery with a creature that is killing people. Right. 
I mean, it's, uh, it's not as we all have it's very relatable. Before. It's not aliens. Yeah. But I did. I liked the little Fincher elements that you could see in there. The kind of uh, gruesome, violent type things that he added in and just the general like it felt like a cool, big, weird sci fi. I loved the sets on this yeah. thing. This is the giant sets and stuff. Well, yeah. it's interesting. You, you mentioned the, the gore that he adds in there because there's a there's a scene that was shot that wasn't included even in the assembly cut. That's like a full autopsy of the girl. Girl Which from they aliens. show a lot. Yeah, but not nearly okay. as much. Yeah. Apparently, it was very difficult to watch, even for the special effects guy who does that sort of thing. <laughs> and he watched and he was like, there's no way that this is going <laughs> to end up yeah. in any cut of this in movie. movie huh. So can I uh, pull my knives out on this movie? Oh, now? please. Yeah. So I never really cared for this film. When you picked it, I was forced to really sit back and figure out why. What I realized is going to sound strange, but basically, it's really depressing. Mm-hmm. And that sounds like a strange criticism, given that the first two films aren't exactly like uppers. You know, they're, it's an alien slaughtering people. But what I think separates the first two films is that they each had a goal of some sort that had some degree of hope. Like in the first film, it's about Ripley wanting to survive and get home. The second film, the stakes get raised when she becomes a mother figure to this little girl and has to worry about, you know, not only her own survival, but that of this kid who's now dependent on her. But in the third film, there's no degree of hope anywhere. Mm. It's a bunch of prisoners who are there to die anyway. She has no real noble goal. And while the stakes were raised from the first film to the second film, I didn't really fi- feel that in this film. I didn't get what she was trying to do that was different from the first film. And so you, you, and you, it's interesting, you viewed that as kind of a plus. Mm-hmm. Like it went back to its original thing. What I found interesting in all of my part threes was like, I, I liked references to the originals, but I wanted them to explore some new ground. And I didn't really feel like this film did. The production of Alien 3 is interesting because it was so troubled. And I think that's probably what it's most famous for. Part of the reason was that no one could really agree on a script. A couple of ideas battered around where the aliens would finally come to Earth, which they actually even released yeah, a teaser, teaser trailer, trailer. for. Mm-hmm. Huh. And so a bunch of people get to the theater and they're like, why aren't they coming to Earth? <laughs> this isn't Earth. And another idea that they had was actually to go to the alien world in this one. And not only that, but they talked about making it that the aliens aren't all evil. Like that, what we're seeing is just the evil ver- version of these aliens, which would have been really interesting. What do you think the good aliens look like? Oh, the same. They just act differently. <laughs> they just wear sweaters. Yeah, <laughs> their blood's Smoke made pipes. of their blood's made of sugar and cotton candy instead of acid. <laughs> yeah. But but anyway, uh, again, uh, there are things I admire about this movie. I, like you said, the set pieces. It's got this really dark, crazy feel that's very Fincher-esque. Well, I would argue that the hopelessness is also very Fincher-esque. Yeah, it's very Fincher. Yeah. I mean, it, it really fits in with what Fincher would go on to do. And yeah. you rarely get a good feeling leaving a David Fincher film. Oh man, I love that feeling. I mean. Yeah, it just it just didn't work here for me for some reason. So this is why it's my number three. Is that it's not objectively a great film. I don't think that it's the best in the series, mm-hmm. second best, but not. It, it, it's a far cry from Ridley Scott's Alien. Right. But I think that it gets a really bad rap, and it shouldn't because I think it's a pretty interesting movie. I think it has a lot of proto-Fincher in it that's worth the watch. All right, Gibby's number three. All right, so my number three. You know, I wanted to start this season off fresh. You know, something new, something a little unexpected from from me to show my growth. You guys see where this is going? And as a film. Yeah. yeah. I think think six eyes just rolled off the table and... (laughs) Down. Just go ahead and say it. Ahead, what, what is it? My number three, best number three, is Toy Story 3, which is the best of the Toy Story films. So I, I kind of came into this season with a sort of like a New Year's resolution type thing where I wasn't going to make fun of Gibby as much. And then like you do this. And what am I supposed to do here? It's, it's like putting meat in front of a rabid dog. I don't, I don't know what to do with this. Well, <laughs> uh, well, I put it here for you. Keep, keep going. Here. Just do it. Keep going. So, so I know our lovely listeners are thinking, you know, didn't he already talk about this in that tearjerker episode? Yes. 
Yes, indeed, I did. But I didn't feel right making any list about the best number threes without including this masterpiece. Right. And I, I can I just, I, I feel terrible over here. Can I just go ahead and get an apology out? Give me. Sure. This is the second time we've watched this movie. <laughs> we've talked about this movie. <laughs> yeah, I still haven't watched, watched it. it. Yeah, the other night, Jordan's texting me, uh, is there any way to watch this? And I gave you <laughs> I gave you a code to join the Disney movie club. <laughs> yeah, I've gotten three zillion emails from Disney since then. And still no Toy Story. No Toy three Blu-rays in the mail. <laughs> None of them Toy Story. So what's it about? All right, so quick synopsis. 15 years after meeting originally Woody and Buzz and the gang in Toy Story 1, and 12 years after adding Jesse and Bullseye in Toy Story 2, we catch up. Years have not been super kind to this gang as shown in a short scene as toys keep disappearing and other toys get older as Andy stops playing with them. Years haven't been kind. Woody's a meth addict now. (laughs) Buzz is selling his body on the streets. Uh, We join them just as Andy, the little boy from first Toy Story, is now getting ready to go off to college. He bags up most of the toys to be stored in the attic, but keeps Woody separate because Woody's his favorite. But a mistake happens, and a bag gets sent how to much, a... How much does Andy get beat up at school? Oh, yeah. Like he's still... Carrying his damn paying. toys around everywhere. <laughs> yeah. Mistakenly, the bag gets sent to a daycare instead of the attic, and Woody has to find his way to the daycare to let the rest of the guys know it was a mistake. They thought Andy got rid of him. But once at the daycare, what they originally thought was a dream life, constantly being played with by well-behaved kids, turns into a nightmare when they learn that the gentle leader of the toys in the daycare, a stuffed bear named Lonzo, is not the generous, gregarious guy they thought he was, and instead a harsh ruler, forcing them to go to the kids' room with the little kids and get beat up badly. But now it's up to Woody to help them find an escape and get back to Andy before he actually does leave for college. This sounds good, Gibby. It is good. I believe it. (laughs) I... I love, love, love this film. To me, it's easily the best of the Toy Story movies. I think it's the perfect capper to this trilogy, which which actually is no longer a trilogy because now they're making a part four. But that's neither here nor there, nor not in my notes. That's why I don't go off script. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like it is here and there. <laughs> I heard they tried to get David Fincher for this. And, um, it was just too dark. <laughs> the and movie ends and with all this. He's, he's distanced himself from it now. All the toys heads off in a box. Um, as I mentioned in the tearjerker <laughs> episode, the, as you guys know, the last 15 no, minutes... Nobody's going to yell, what's in the toy box? Yeah, what's in, what's the, in the, toy the toy box? box? <laughs> okay. The last 15 minutes of this movie, every time I watch it, I'm on the verge of a complete <laughs> breakdown. <laughs> Which is pretty embarrassing in this. We like should have just times. played. We should. We could have cut together this entire review from Gibby's old episodes. Yeah. <laughs> Very deja vu. I can think of no better ending to this movie and to this trilogy than how this one ends. Well, don't spoil it. Well, the, what's funny is, I mean, you covered the whole film in a tearjerker segment that wasn't even about Toy Story 3. You picked another movie and <laughs> right. you somehow segue. It's like you had to get as no. much Pixar packed into recall, that segment. I picked all of Pixar and you guys got really mad oh, at me. Oh, right. Yeah, that's what uh, I was. That's you right. made me at the instant pick them film and I threw in Toy Story oh, 3. so yeah. rude. So I, lo- I love Pixar, not as much as Gibby does, uh, but... No um, one loves anything as much <laughs> as Gibby loves Pixar. But I don't know what it is. The Toy Story movies just all feel so... Maybe safe is the right word. Huh. It's kind of like the way that... It's a movie for Andes, is what I feel like, mm. and I'm not an Andy. Mm. Like, it's a movie for people who You're are... Hudson. Are, are like this clean-cut, black-and-white kind of safe environment and, and and i'm speaking oddly because i can't put my words on it clearly 
<laughs> clearly. <laughs> but it just doesn't have the edge that some of the other Pixar movies does, and it doesn't surprise you in some of the other ways. Like, it's a great, perfectly put-together movie. It's not a... Uh, it doesn't push any envelopes. Does that make sense? First time I've heard somebody's criticism of Toy Story involved being not edgy. You know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which is funny, because I don't think that I'm the kind of... I don't think I'm an Andy, and I haven't seen Toy Story 3, of course, but I love Toy Story 1. I mean, yeah. love it. I've seen it so many times. It's so edgy. But, but, whether, but, but whether you are an Andy, whatever that means, I mean, <laughs> it, I think he still has certain qualities that everybody has in them somewhere. Yeah. I mean, there's an innocence and a... I mean, we all had toys. True. We all loved that. I mean, and what, what those toys represent yeah, for us, yes. Yeah. But I see what you're saying. I mean, but again, I, I don't think every Pixar film has to be edgy. I mean, right. what, what would you consider an edgy Pixar film? Like... Uh, uh, Wally. You, okay. you know, so it, it's right. something that you haven't seen before. It's different. Right. Yeah. Incredibles 2 has two swear words in it, so oh, that's pretty we're going incredible. You're kidding. Uh, what are this they? Is Beep really and beep. <laughs> <laughs> this this film is ninety nine percent in Rotten Tomatoes, eight point three on Lance's precious IMDb chart. And <laughs> chart in my room. <laughs> I'm always updating it with a marker. Uh, one thing that, that that part three really does differently than the other two is it takes a whole different genre of film, and this becomes really like a prison escape movie. There's a huge number of references to The Great Escape and many great films from the 50s and 60s, which yeah. I've never seen. But I thought the shower rape scene huh. was a little <laughs> off It was too far. It also introduces us to a whole bunch of new great characters, and my favorite being Ken Doll. So, who's ready for Ken's Dream Tour? Uh, wonderfully voiced by Michael Keaton. Hi, I'm Ken. Barbie... Have we ever met? Uh-uh. I would have remembered. <laughs> Love your leg warmers. Nice ascot. So, Toy Story 3. I know you guys are all shocked, but that's my number three. I'm, I'm number only three. shocked that it's number three and not number one. Well, it would be number one if this were actually, if it were just going to be a trilogy, but now that they're making a part four, I kind of I had to move it down my list. But this that is, is this is in my No, it sure doesn't make any sense, sense, but we'll go but with it. Roll this with is, it. This is in my top 15 of all. I just want probably. this segment to end. Is it, is it done? <laughs> All right, Lance, you're number three. The Exorcist 3, 1990 film by William Peter Blatty. The third installment in the Exorcist series follows Detective Kinderman, played by George C. Scott. He investigates a series of murders which bear similarities to a man known as the Gemini Serial Killer. The only problem? The Gemini Killer has been dead for 15 years. Kinderman's investigation of the crimes, many of which involve the desecration of religious icons, leads him to a psychiatric war where a patient claiming to be the dead serial killer resides. A psychological tete-a-tete ensues between the patient and Kinderman as the detective's investigation leads him into the realm of the supernatural. Exorcist 3 represents... I hate saying exorcist. You said pet-a-pet right then. I know. That was easier. Exorcist 3 represents an example of something you see sometimes with part threes, which is a bit of a course correction. First film was a cultural landmark, then it was followed up with Exorcist 2, which, as sequels often are, just became kind of a money grab rehash of the first film. But Exorcist 3 represents one of those great examples where creative influence took over again. In this case, the author of the original book becoming the director, which I always found interesting, and put things back on the right track. It works because it doesn't just try to recreate what worked the first time, but it actually tells us a different kind of story. So whereas Exorcist was a drama chronicling the battle of good and evil with a little girl's soul at stake, this film takes us on more of a psychological police procedural type film. And what's great about it too is that it doesn't entirely abandon its original story either. It gives us just enough references to the first film so we're, we know we're watching an Exorcist film, including the reappearance of Father Karras, who was the protagonist of the original Exorcist. So in that regard, it's a brilliant balancing act between, you know, retreading old ground and exploring new territory, which uh, so few sequels are able to accomplish. May the Lord be in your heart and help you to confess your sins. 
17 of them, Father. The first was that waitress uh, near Candlestick Park. I cut her throat and watched her bleed. She bled a great deal. It's a problem that I'm working on, Father. All this bleeding. Hey, I love this movie. I'm glad you liked it. I had a feeling oh, you were going to dig it. this one. I love it. Oh, shocker. And I actually don't love The Exorcist that much. Mm-hmm. But this movie, I really loved. For the scary parts, which I thought were awesome, Brad Dorif, who I love, mm-hmm. is amazing in it. But my favorite thing about this movie is probably the friendship between George C. Scott as the cop, the lieutenant, and the priest. Right. I could watch a whole movie where... Just the two of them. Oh, yeah. man. I mean, what great characters and a great relationship. Really, I loved every aspect of this movie. There's one scene in particular that's just this long shot of the hallway of a, of a hospital. The payoff is so short, mm-hmm. but so worth it. I'm not going to ruin it for you. Mm-hmm. Great movie. Very little music, which I thought was really interesting. Yeah. And very little actual gore. Very little, but what I found interesting about this movie is I think we get to a point where we kind of feel like we've seen everything in terms of how you can kill people. Sure. This movie came up with all these fresh, interesting ways to do that. It, yeah. cont- it kept being shocking. But then we don't actually really see it right well we don't they see, talk they talk to us about it and we imagine it which is really fun right and then we see the, we see the aftermath of some of it yeah um and yeah it just i don't know it continued to shock me i was like whoa how did they come up with that idea that i how has no one done that before? Yeah. That, that was really intriguing. It kept being fresh. This movie does suffer some from some, I guess, studio influence. Mm-hmm. The studio wanted to add that the extra exorcist, which I don't understand where he came from. Mm-hmm. That, and the, so the ending got all mucked up. Yeah. It still worked, but I, don't, I, I think that if Blatty had been able to really fulfill his vision, it, it could have been even better. Yeah, I don't know. I found the movie to be... Um... <laughs> I can already tell you didn't see it. <laughs> Well, I, just, I found the movie to be a little, uh, I don't know, blatty. Oh. Like, was there yeah. right term for That's that? Funny. I did. Wow. I did, was, ju- yeah. I did well, just a, read a fact. joke, too? <laughs> I did just read a factoid because uh, I didn't watch the movie, and while you were doing your review, I read up on it. Uh, Instead of listening my good, attentively. So Blatty, William Peter Blatty, wrote mm-hmm. the original Exorcist book, right? Right. Which then he adapted into the screenplay into a movie. It was a big success. He was not involved in the second one? I they don't believe he was. Does the second one suck? It seems like everybody, nobody likes yeah. the second one. Okay. Mm-hmm. And then so this one, he he came up with a new idea and they were going to make it as a movie, but it got stuck in development hell. So he published the book of it right. as Legion. Which was not tied into the Exorcist story. Oh, it, was, it wasn't? Yeah, okay. it, was, it was different. And then so they readapted so it. Initially, he did not want it to be tied to it right Cor- that's correct uh, i think i think he started pitching it and he realized this was kind of a good way to take that storyline and get his baby kind of back on track one final morbid note the favorite film of serial killer jeffrey dahmer yeah jeez really i, I heard about that which oh, i don't wonder why we should ban it that i can't believe you chose out. it all right my number three there are three types of part threes that i wanted to discuss on the show today the first one is where you have a movie and its sequel that fit into a certain style tone and genre but by the time you get to the third part they totally over overturn it, uh, overturn what's been established and you end up with a movie that's completely crazy and surprisingly enjoyable that reestablishes the character in a new way. Uh, my number three movie does just that, Thor Ragnarok. After the surprisingly entertaining Thor, just the fourth film in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, preceded only by two Iron Men and a Captain America, we ended up with Thor The Dark World just two years after that, which is generally considered one of the worst Marvel films, although I'd argue that Dark World is actually a lot of fun. It did feel like more of the same kind of space Shakespeare stuff 
stuff that uh, Thor set up. They at least darkened Chris Hemsworth's eyebrows for the sequel. And then after a four-year break, under the direction of New Zealand director Taika Waititi, they introduced us to a new kind of Thor that felt more like a 1980s Flash Gordon than a typical Marvel movie. After a much too serious Thor in his first two movies, in Ragnarok, the character gets to be downright zany. You can assume that the success of another Marvel space caper, Guardians of the Galaxy, was in part responsible for this. Well, that and the fact that they learned at some point over these last seven years that Chris Hemsworth is pretty funny guy. Yeah. Yeah. When we catch up with Thor in Ragnarok, he has been searching the universe unsuccessfully for the Infinity Stones. He then goes through what you would consider to be a very bad day. After his father dies, his long-lost sister, Hela, destroys his hammer, and he's banished to a junk planet called Sakaar. Part of what makes Ragnarok so much fun is he's joined this time by the Hulk, who has been on Sakaar for the past two years, stuck in his Hulk form, and now a top gladiator on the planet in a contest of champions run by Jeff Goldblum at his gold bloomiest. All this is inspired by the comic book story Planet Hulk. The rest of the film plays as a two-hander, Hulk and Thor in a buddy comedy. Their team filled out eventually with Loki and Valkyrie, a bounty hunter character played wonderfully by Tessa Thompson, and their group of Revengers end up heading back to Asgard to save it from being destroyed by Hela. Watiti previously brought a small but equally zany New Zealand films like Boy, Hunt for the Wilder People, and What We Do in the Shadows, and has quickly become one of my favorite filmmakers. He plays a small but memorable role here also as the rock creature Korg. Maybe we should play a clip of that. Yeah, that'd be good. Hey, 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 take it easy, man. Allow me to introduce myself. My name is Korg. I'm kind of like the leader in here. Over here, this pile of rocks waving at you. Here. Yeah, I'm actually a thing. I'm a being. I'm made of rocks, as you can see, but don't let that intimidate you. You don't need to be afraid unless you're made of scissors. <laughs> Just a little rock, paper, a joke for you. Uh, but while most people talk up the comedy in Thor Ragnarok, I also find the film to be occasionally emotionally gripping, and it contains some of the coolest visuals we've yet seen in a Marvel film. And I can't help but smile just thinking about the use of Zeppelin's Immigrant Song in the film. If I've made a grave mistake, Odin son. Oh, I make grave mistakes all the time. Everything seems to work out. For my Marvel films, I say the weirder the better. And with the success of Ragnarok, I have a feeling they'll be keeping Marvel weird for a while. I love this one. I think just from the very beginning when Thor is in a little cage and he's spinning around just kind of doing a soliloquy. Soliloquy. Here we go. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, it's just immediately it's like oh this is a different Thor and a different type of Marvel movie and from there I just I laughed out loud in this yeah it's very funny I've been um, somewhat critical of the whole Marvel thing not because I hate it because just it still felt kind of redundant to me and this film was kind of a reminder that they are trying to do new things and interesting things and this was a legitimately funny movie I actually I actually liked this um, the uh, you know scene you're talking about I actually I don't laugh out loud in movies very much there were a couple of scenes in this film one of the one you're talking about where he's suspended by chains and this evil guy is trying to talk to him and he keeps he can't control which way he's facing with the chains and he (laughs) keeps kind of spinning around you know it's funny you should mention that because I've been having these terrible dreams of late Asgard up in flames falling to ruins and you sir are at the center of all of them then you have seen Ragnarok the fall of Asgard the great prophecy hang on Hang on. I'll be back around shortly. Do I really feel like we were connecting there? Yeah. 
Okay, so Ragnarok, tell me about that. Walk me through it. My time has come. When my crown is reunited with the eternal flame, I shall be restored to my full might. I will tower over the mountains and bury my sword deep in Asgard. Oh, hang on. Give it a second. I swear, I'm not even moving. It's just doing this on its own. It was just little moments like that where, and it's so interesting kind of what they've done with the Thor character that he doesn't take himself too seriously. They're right. funny. It's just not the direction you'd expect a film like this to go. So I, I did enjoy this. Yeah. There were occasional moments towards the end in particular where I felt like they should have gone for the emotional moment and they went for a joke instead. So I think it, it can be a fault to go a little too jokey when you're dealing with like big stake type of stuff. I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. Oh, good. Because I can't, I just, this, I have not this, seen movie, this movie. No, I, I couldn't finish it. I, I, I could not finish it because I'm not a big comic book guy. I'm definitely not a big Marvel movie guy. There is something I enjoy about comics and these and these some of these movies is that the stakes are super high. Mm -hmm. And with Thor, they should be like, I mean, it's the whole universe is involved with these high stakes. And yet all they do is joke the whole time. And if Thor isn't taking any of these stakes seriously, which I don't feel like he is, then I can't take any of it seriously. And it just felt like a parody. It felt like a parody of Thor and Marvel things. It also felt like a weird parody of Lord of the Rings, Asgard, and they go to like that place and it just felt and then Matt Damon shows up and mm. yes I did laugh at Matt Damon but like it only solidified this idea of it being a parody of itself and of anything else and and just humor sure. it was for 13 year old boys which none of us are I don't think you I well, don't I don't disagree with any of that kind of. I think you're dead on with all of that stuff I think in my mind I was kind of able to separate it from the rest of the Marvel stuff and that's why it sort of worked for me mm -hmm. but you're right it's it is one of these things where am I supposed to take this seriously or not it's yeah. it's and I'm, I'm kind of with you there I, again, it didn't ruin the movie for me, but I'm, that's all valid. I think. So I like that a lot because one of my problems with the Marvel films, specifically, say numbers four through twelve of the Marvel universe, I don't know what is it. They all I had a, no idea. They all no ended. <laughs> got to give me some context. The stakes were too high in every movie. Every movie ended with some sort of ship or something hovering over a city or a But isn't a that state. comic books? Yes, yeah, don't we read no, comic books? They pretty much also happens be, in this one, too. It got to be pretty stale. <laughs> and what this did is this sort of made fun of it. This well, that would be my argument as well. It's like, look, you've got... When you're... when you're If you treat Marvel as a franchise, you're going to have to come up with some unique ways to take on that stuff because you can't do the same tone every single time. And that's one of the arguments that people make about the Marvel movies. I so see a very do, simple solution make fewer of them Ooh. <laughs> billions of dollars would disagree i think yeah mm, was that, that's that quote battle. the problem with movies as a business is that movies are an art form the problem with movies as an art form is that movies are a business yes it's just that's what you right. run into what is billions of dollars in the face of art right. billions of dollars exactly uh jordan number two am i doing that right don't know don't no. even know what it is number two number three. Oh, mm, hot hot topic here we're we gonna start this one with a song. Yeah, Gibby, will you introduce us with a song? Sing it, please. Please don't leave me waiting. I can't love you any stronger. Please don't keep me waiting. I can't take this kind of thing. Take me back in your arms once again. A uh, third one is a trilogy in itself. It's three short films. One grouped together is called the Beaver Trilogy. 
Jordan's making up his nobody's, own rules. Nobody's heard of it. So. It's made by a guy named Trent Harris, who was cameraman for uh, Salt Lake City TV station in the late 70s, and just happened to be outside with his camera when this quirky young man was out there taking pictures of the television station. And turns out he does impersonations and then really, really wants to be on TV. And That's really good. Too. Oh, yeah. It was, absolutely. It was Much better than Sean Penn's. I love impersonating and my gosh, if I made the tube, I just thank you so much. <laughs> Here's John Wayne. Yo. Well, I'll tell you something out there in TV land. <laughs> I'm hamming it up. <laughs> Can you do any more imitations? Uh, do you know Rocky? Sylvester Stallone? Yeah, do that one. Okay, you know what I mean? You know Rocky Sylvester Stallone, you know? He's got a coach named Mickey, you know what I mean? He's a good guy, you know? He knows his fight. He knows his left from his right. He knows his left toe from his right toe, you know? He's a good fighter, you know? He's a, he's a good guy, and he loves his wife, Adrian, you know? <laughs> Boy, I love having it up. You can tell. Boy, I'm on TV. <laughs> the, guy, the kid's name is Groovin' Gary. Not his real name, but that's what he goes by. He drives this funny car that has Farrah Fawcett. Yeah, decals of Farrah Fawcett and, and Well, not decals. Literally carved into, in, oh, yeah, etched right. into, and, and pictures of them into the, the glass, <laughs> the windows. And he wants to be on TV so bad that he organizes this talent show. Talent show, thank you where he's going to play one of his favorite characters, which is Olivia Newton, Dawn. <laughs> and he does a drag impersonation of Olivia Newton-John. Surprisingly, this is not a narrative film. At least the first part, it is a documentary. This apparently well, really happened. It was a part that they were going to film for a television show right. in Utah. And it's just like shows normal everyday life. So this, he found it. Very news. normal, it be very everyday. Yeah, to be clear, this is, I mean, it's basically a documentary. Right. The first part is a documentary. Basically. So, this, this so, is all really happening. This Beaver is not a one. narrative. Yeah, it's great. So then Trent Harris decides that he's going to make it into a narrative short, and he casts a very young pre-Spicoli, isn't that his name? Yeah. Uh, Sean Penn, to play Groove and Gary. And it's this black and white, super hazy VHS-looking short film. Shot for $100. Pretty pretty cheap. And then uh, four years after that, he makes it the same story again into another narrative short film called The Orkley Kid, starring a pre-Back to the Future Crispin Glover. It wasn't until the late 90s that these three short films were ever seen together, and Trent Harris had no intention of them being seen together. And he put them together for some friends to watch all as one piece, and it turned into another beast altogether. And I love this trilogy of short films because it's not only an a fascinating character study of this kid, but it's also a real exploration of how we tell stories and how we get to the truth with stories and, and what, I mean, you, we don't know what the truth is because it the story shifts and changes with each iteration and you get more details or less details and sometimes contradicting. And I, I saw this film in the theaters last year at, during this film festival and it just kind of made my mind melt. I'd, I'd never seen anything <laughs> like it. And it's, it's kind of hard to hunt down because he never got the rights to the music. So it's not streaming anywhere, but I bought a copy from Trent Harris himself through his website. And there's not another movie like this that I've ever seen. I would absolutely agree with that. Yeah, I, I, uh, I, I just Googled Beaver Trilogy and I ended up watching a very different <laughs> movie uh, that I think of mine getting mixed up. Oddly, it did have uh, a character called Olivia Newton-Dong. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I, but it was great. Yeah. Um, I'd never heard of this film. Um, nope. And uh, I finished it, and I was just kind of perplexed. Like, I didn't know what the hell I just watched. And that's not a criticism. I was just genuinely confused, which made me mm -hmm. want to start reading more about it. 
Um, in some circles, this film is a really big deal and has a huge cult following. And one thing that was interesting is that uh, interviews that I read with the director, he even seemed a little confused as to why it had taken off. And it's kind of got to a point where he even hates talking about it. Like he's kind of over the whole mm-hmm. phenomenon. But I thought a lot about why, why did this movie connect with people? And I think, you know, it strikes a core of people who feel different and out of place. And Gary seems like a guy who has so much going on under the surface that people can relate to in terms of being one thing, but being forced to act like another. Again, that's my best guess as to why people have connected with it. What stands out about him is how concerned he is that the viewer is going to think he's gay or that, mm-hmm. the, or that he's deranged or that well, something's wrong. So with him because one thing I'm not sure if you've mentioned is that this takes place in 1979, Utah, yeah, which is perhaps the most conservative right. portion of America. So, so as he's getting, as he's transforming into drag, he keeps telling us he doesn't want us to think he's weird for doing he's this. Right. That's what he keeps saying to the director. I enjoy dressing up. And, like, and you I get do, the impression that even as he's saying it, he doesn't believe it. Like, it's more that he's finally realizing who he really is, and he's just afraid of that. And I think that was a very powerful sentiment for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. I, my favorite line from the film, he says, everyone performed great. I think they gave Beaver the reputation it deserved. <laughs> and it's like, yeah. that's probably really true, actually. Yeah. And that probably a, is what it deserved. A, that's only a few minutes after they cut to a shot of the crowd right during the actual performance and it's the saddest thing oh, ever because seen. it's only the performers right 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 it's no only one the else is there performers. Yeah. Yeah. very uh, very you didn't realize film. that when you were watching it Hudson? they were the performers. i did not <laughs> <laughs> no actually i did watch this oh, you did i watched well i watched uh i watched the, the first short okay which i i thought was fantastic and i loved that part of it i only made it halfway through the sean penn one though yeah because a i was bored because i'd already seen this before and b what makes the first one work is you've got this character who you really respect in a lot of ways even though you're laughing at him at the same time mm-hmm. and the, when they remade it as a short with the sean penn they're just laughing at him well like it, it felt like i think if you made it through yeah, the whole short your perspective would totally change uh, it's it really has the three really have to be seen together to be felt because there's information in the second half of the second short that would have really huh interesting changed yeah. your perspective on hear that. that people at home you want to watch all three parts of the beaver trilogy <laughs> here's don't a, air where hudson did here's an interesting quote that i saw phil lord the guy who helped create 21 22 jump street the movies and uh, lego movie said to me it felt like it was a film school education in 83 minutes it's a great treatise and storytelling in a different ways you can tell story just with subtle changes and that's what's interesting in all three he did just make subtle changes the third film i don't think jordan mentioned stars crispin glover i did oh it's okay <laughs> I was, I was, I clear about that. Uh, but crispin glover in his most george mcfly-ish like did he get this george yeah. mcfly based upon his I, acting in I, this movie? I don't think there's any doubt that this had a huge influence on mm-hmm. who he played i, yeah, think, I think that's george. a good point i think uh, you're right but when, i've heard arguments that it's the same for spicoli mm, and yeah, sean penn spicoli there's, a, there's a lot of they both play gary very differently by the time that third one rolls around you have seen it twice already, but there's just enough changes to get like a whole fuller view of this guy and his life, mm. which I mean, it's fiction. Part two and three were fiction things that he had that well, based trend, on based yeah. on a true story. Uh, one of the most interesting things, there's also a new documentary that came out last year, two years ago about the trilogy. Uh, it's on Amazon Prime. Did you see that? I have not had the heart to watch it yet. I, I love the original trilogy so much that I'm, I'm more information I'm not sure is going to help me. Yeah, not into the prequels. So you're not, certainly not. So a tragic side note on this is that Groove and Gary passed away a few years ago. Yeah, he did. Yeah, heart, heart attack. Oh, no yeah. way. What did There's he do another. with his life post that? 
He was a truck driver for a while. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. He was married, had a stepkid, had a dog. Uh, quick note about why I think the, the, the original documentary works so well is that there's no narration. Trent lets Groove and Gary totally speak for himself. And Groove and Gary has plenty of words to speak for himself. Yeah. There's no awkward silence, just lots of awkward not silence. Um, but I think it works so well that he just pieces this footage together, lets a dude talk for himself. One thing I've, I did learn from this is that apparently I am an Olivia Newton-John fan. Yeah, you are. Because this song that they played in the movie... 18 times I have listened to about 17 times of my own since then and I had a different reaction to I can't song. stop it <laughs> out of my head forever uh, well I've become an Olivia Newton dong fan for sure <laughs> alright Gibby number two part three alright Gibby's number two part three this is the third film in the most recent and the really awesome Apes trilogy War for the Planet of the Apes from 2017 directed by Matt Reeves. This is set 15 years after the events of the first movie in the series, Rise of the Planet of the Apes, in which an Alzheimer-type cure ended up creating a couple of really smart apes and creating a simian flu, which wiped out most of humanity. It's set a couple of years after the second film in the series, Dawn of the Planet of the Apes. So this movie, War for the Planet of the Apes, picks up in the middle of a surprise attack on an ape stronghold by a group of human soldiers looking for the leader of the apes, Caesar. That's a documentary? Yes. <laughs> this is the first one was a documentary. The second one was a short film. <laughs> <laughs> this is a two hour and twenty epic. Uh, Caesar is the cute, smart little monkey from the first movie, and he can now talk. <laughs> so when Caesar's wife and oldest son are murdered at the hands of the evil colonel, Caesar loses his mind on a quest for vengeance, tearing after the army and the colonel while telling his people, well, I guess his apes, uh, to go off to a paradise found by his now dead son. The film really picks up when Caesar and three of his ape buddies begin the hunt for the colonel. Along the way, picking up a mute human child and a former zoo ape aptly named Bad Ape. Bad Ape can also talk. Uh, I love this part of the film. It's like a western movie. It's a posse on a hunt for a bad guy. Later in the film, it turns into a different type of genre, into a uh, prison escape movie when they're captured and are kept in the colonel's prison. Like Toy Story 3. Yeah, like Toy Story 3. I love escape movies, and uh, I I just think that this is like... Oh, I had a line here. Let me say that. (laughs) Half pseudo-Western, half prison escape movie, all awesome. I love this series and the way this movie concluded the trilogy. Um, I feel like you're reading a high school book report right now. <laughs> I feel like he's talking about Toy Story 3 again. <laughs> he is. Hollywood's entered this period in which having franchises is kind of the that kind of reigns supreme right now. And I think I like the idea of these movies more than I actually like the movies. Like watching the ascendance of the ape community in parallel with the descendancy of humanity is is really interesting. And, and I love origin stories. And so I feel like I'm watching a really long one here that's going to lead to the, what happens in the original Charlton Heston film. Having said that, for some reason, these films are just really forgettable to me. And and that obviously sounds like a criticism. I really don't mean it to be. But I watch them, and like an hour later, I can't tell you anything that happened in them. I think it's because it all starts to run together to me. Now, the first film was different. Like, I do remember the first film really well, and I think that was my favorite. So I, so I thought the first was the worst of the three. Well, but I, th- but I feel like two and three are, are kind of just covering the same ground again. It's a big military battle. The humans are losing it. And I, I guess I just felt like the third one was just kind of hitting the same notes the second one did. Well, it's funny. That's, a, that's exactly what my note was, was that I watched the first one. I loved it. A year later, I couldn't tell you a thing that happened in it. The second one, I loved it, watched it, couldn't tell you a thing that happened. And and I think it's because your main characters are these CGI characters, mm-hmm. like these these apes. Uh-huh. It, while you're, while you're watching it, you're caring for them. Them, but they just there's something in our brains I think that knows that not to connect hmm. in some way that's interesting. And, and I don't know what that is or why and maybe that's not the case but that's kind of what my interpretation that, that's of that exactly how I felt in the 12 minutes of this that I watched <laughs> 
Uh, I just how do I don't know how to relate to a group of well you hadn't CGI seen you monkeys. didn't see Rise or Dawn did you No, I've seen the originals. Yeah, but this is totally different than the originals. Exactly. Yeah. Well, I I just thought they did. First of all, it's awesomely directed. I think Matt Reeves is a very talented director, and just in that first battle scene that you saw, there's some impressive action shots. There's a drone shot of. It lasts for like a minute and a half of this whole big battle scene going on. Well, it's, I think it's maybe maybe I'm talking out of my ass here, but like he's when, literally talking out of his ass for those <laughs> very, very uncomfortable. It's kind of weird. <laughs> when you make it all in CGI, I think it's a lot easier to perfect the shots and have amazing shots than if you're actually. Well, shooting I, think it. I don't know how much it of that seems was like real. It would be but difficult because I mean there are actual actors in there. I mean they were you see the mocap. Yeah, now they aren't mocap. I mean they were soldiers. Like the drone shot shows these soldiers in the oh. battle running around shooting. And then it also shows the apes coming. I in. do think in that way, the first scene, that big battle scene, is super impressive and really remarkable how good the CGI is. The problem is that it's still CGI and CGI is stupid. <laughs> <laughs> part of the issue here, too, though, and maybe this is part of the conflict of the film you're supposed to have is I don't know who I'm supposed to be pulling for here. Well, I think well, that's a good thing about the film. Too. Yeah, I, 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 yeah. You, you may be right. I, I don't give you your microphones falling. <laughs> um <laughs> That was fun to watch. Well, so for the first like hour, I mean, this is a long movie. It's a it's an epic, and it's also I didn't mention this earlier. It's kind of like an Exodus story, in that mm-hmm. Caesar is like Moses. I mean, it ends in the Promised Land, basically parting the Red Sea. Yeah, They're just parts eating honey and yeah, dousing well, he himself some milk. He doesn't get to go in, which I can oh, only be so happy about that because my species has been destroyed. Right, but. and they did a good job too. I mean, at first you think that the Woody Harrelson character is just evil, and all he wants to do is kill the Ace, but then later on in the film they give him more backstory. Yeah, and that was good. He becomes he's, more. He used to work human. in a bar, but it is. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> it is weird watching these films, and at the end you are conflicted. You're like, well, yeah. why am I not sad that humans died and these apes are dying? But I did want to point out that this score had this movie has a fantastic score, and it even combines elements from the. Was it have like a seven point nine or? Oh, I meant music score. There you go. Oh, but it's RT. I got you. It's right in- <laughs> <laughs> And finally it hit. It is. It's 93% in Rotten Tomatoes, 82% Metacritic. So basically you guys are wrong because uh, critics love it. And I didn't, Kyle I didn't say critics nope. don't love it. Yeah, well, nobody said that. wrong about But it's a great score. I play it a lot while I'm working. And it combines a lot of elements of the original Planet of the Apes films. All right, Lance, you're number two, number three. Die Hard with a Vengeance, John McTiernan's 1995 film. Finally, we get to see John McClane on his home turf in New York City. A terrorist is threatening the Big Apple and is picking on our favorite no-nonsense cop, threatening to set bombs off all over the city if McClane doesn't perform a series of bizarre tasks. Fate brings him together with Zeus Carver, played by Samuel L. Jackson, as the two must overcome their differences in a race to save the city and identify the mysterious terrorist. So whereas Exorcist Three represented a course correction, Die Hard with a Vengeance represents more of a course shift. A correction wasn't really needed because Die Hard 2 is a really great film in its own right, but even to those of us who are really good at the suspension of disbelief, the idea that a guy would happen to stumble onto a 
terrorist plot three times is a little far-fetched. So the solution was to just have the terrorists seek out McLean and remove the coincidence from the story, which is exactly what happens here. The original idea was to have the story take place on a boat where McLean and his wife from the first two films are on a trip, but that idea was abandoned when Under Siege was made, and the, the script for that original idea later became Speed 2 Cruise Control. <laughs> oh, Fortunately, the creators passed on that as it would have sucked. <laughs> this is such a fun movie, and it serves maybe as more of an adventure film than the first two since McLean isn't stuck in a single place the entire time. So we get a slightly more mobile John McLean in this one. Uh, watching what the next task will be is a blast, perhaps the most notable of which is the very first one, where McLean is forced to stand in the middle of Harlem wearing a sign that says, I hate a bad word for mm, people that very we don't bad. like to use. But the pairing of Willis and Jackson, how their relationship sort of grows <laughs> over the course of it, and how it all plays out while we uncover the true intentions of the terrorists played by Jeremy Irons is so much fun. Um, additionally, watching the larger team of cops as they're working on chasing down the criminal is great. So in this one, we're seeing a much larger force that has McLean's back and is helping him out. So it's a nice change of pace in this to see him not entirely on his own like he was in the first two films. Um, again, like Exorcist 3, the film does a great job of balancing the old and the new. So we don't get the same tropes from the first two films as we actually don't see McLean's wife, Holly, although I kind of wish we had because she's a great character. Nor do we get the slimy reporter who appeared in the first two films, but the identity of the terrorist does tie nicely into the first one without seeming silly or forced. Yeah, this movie is so much fun. I mean, much like you said, reinvigorates that franchise in a really unique way. Um, and I think the smart thing that they did, like they, it, you know, you mentioned they had tried out other scripts before. And then this script actually came that was just a spec script that someone had written for a di- completely new right. franchise. And they adapted it to the Die Hard story, which, you know, if you were hired to write a Die Hard story, you'd want to do the same thing over and over again, which is how you end up with a terrible yep. cruise ship. Where am I going to have him get trapped? Right. right. But in this one, they reinvigorated by coming up with a whole new premise to throw. Because what makes Die Hard great is not really the premise. It's the character. And so throwing him into a a new, unique situation. But I loved all the little clues, and you're playing along with them. My my favorite little clue is that water riddle. Oh, yeah. Like in the middle of Central Park. (laughs) I remember we watched it together at the theater. And they do this water thing, and for like five minutes, like, I don't know what to do. I don't know. And then all of a sudden, like, okay, we figured it out. Yeah, he figures it out in like five seconds. Well, I remember leaving the theater still not knowing how they did it (laughs) and us trying to figure it out afterwards. On the fountain, there should be two jugs. Do you see them? Five gallon and a three gallon. Fill one of the jugs with exactly four gallons of water and place it on the scale, and the timer will stop. You must be precise. One ounce or more or less will result in detonation. If you're still alive in five minutes, we'll speak. Wait, again. wait a sec. I don't get it. You get it? No. And it's just filled with cool stuff like that. If you were at a TGI Fridays in Duluth, Georgia around May of 1995 and heard a table full of dorky white guys talking about trying yeah, to figure out a water napkins, riddle, trying that's to us. Write it, write it out. <laughs> I, was, I wasn't there. No. no. Just want to put we didn't that know out you there. You're like eight. I'm, I was never a dorky white guy. <laughs> oh, that too. This is a rare part three for me where I struggle to not sometimes think it's better than the original. Hmm. Really? But then I watched the original and I'm like, no, the original's better. So I really think they're probably average out to be both so good that neither one of them can be better than the other. Hmm. I don't know why it's so good. It just is. Do you think I, it's better than part two, I assume? I have thought that for a long time, but then I started a tradition where I watch part two every Christmas. And man, part two is really good. Oh, great. Hmm. Um, oddly, critics did not love it. It's got 52% on Rotten Tomatoes. Is that right? See, yeah. Gibby, critics don't know what they're talking yeah. about. 
they do in Planet of the Apes. Well, it's funny, though. The consensus still kind of gives it a positive. Die Hard 3 with a Vengeance gets off to a fast start and benefits from Bruce Willis and Samuel L. Jackson's barbed interplay, but clatters to a bombastic finish in a vain effort to cover for an overall lack of fresh ideas, which is odd because we all seem to think yeah, it, it's was, a fresh, it is a fresh it. idea. Yeah. It's one thing that, that's nice, too, is they didn't go too far with the whole like race thing because that would have just been kind of stupid, I think. Mm-hmm. Like Samuel L. Jackson is this kind of like, I mean, he's very, you know, I'm trying to say this the right way. <laughs> Cross, he's just he he's very angry and he's yeah, very yeah. like he's more like from this maybe Malcolm X right school. It, he 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 hates white people he, he's very blunt about that right off the start mm-hmm. and they use that more as a funny interplay between the two of them as trying as opposed to trying to take Die Hard and explore race relations with yeah. it which would that just would have been kind of dumb and out of place but the way that they leverage that to like make their relationship funnier they almost use it more as like a comic device which is which is kind of nice and refreshing like they didn't feel the need to take a, a serious topic too seriously because mm-hmm. they were. They get, they're like, oh yeah, we're making a diehard movie. A lot of fun. This was, I believe, the second R-rated film I saw in a theater by myself. Oh wow! Gibby's constant references to where he saw things <laughs> in amazing. a theater and who he was it's with. An amazing skill. It's amazing slash really uninteresting. Uh, <laughs> I would say. Wait, you saw it by yourself, like with no well, one with else? you guys. I mean, without uh, my parents. Oh. Walking in the first time you saw that, your parents. <laughs> this was the second one. Oh, the what first was one it? was a week earlier. What was it? Was it? Crimson Tide. Oh, wow. Really ran out, went out on. Really good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. So my second number three, The Dark Knight, Christopher Nolan's sequel to Batman Begins, is widely considered to be one of the greatest films of the last twenty years. So much so that he gave himself a near impossible feat in attempting to follow it up. But what Nolan does so well in The Dark Knight Rises, which is the movie we'll be talking about today, uh, is he doesn't try to recreate the Dark Knight magic. He simply finishes telling his story in a way that the third part requires. And the entire trilogy has been building up to this idea that one man can't change the world alone. Dark Knight Rises catches us up with Bruce Wayne after the events of the previous film. Wayne is now an eccentric and handicapped recluse after an attack by Tom Hardy's villainous Bane, which I'm sure we'll get some imitations of. You probably will. (laughs) Many, in fact. After an attack on the stock exchange leaves Wayne bankrupt, uh, Batman makes his return. Nolan described the Joker as diabolical, chaotic anarchy and has a devilish sense of humor, but he called Bane a classic movie monster. The Joker took down Gotham by not believing in anything and Bane does it by believing in one thing fully. Whereas in The Dark Knight the Joker challenged Batman philosophically and rises Bane challenges Batman physically. The movie really explores how Bruce Wayne responds when everything is taken away from him. His lifelong love, his money, his mentor and father figure in Alfred, and finally his body after Bane breaks his back and throws him into a pit of prisoners. And ultimately he must... Which which somehow they got from Gotham City to... Wherever the hell that is. I don't know where it is. Is it like Another gets back just like in, in, uh, in a day Kansas. or two. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, and ultimately, uh, Bruce Wayne must escape the prison and rise. Wink. Mm-hmm. Uh, to be a new Batman and a new Bruce Wayne. So while Batman is out of action, Bane holds the entire city of Gotham hostage, leveling the city physically by blowing up a football stadium in a jaw-dropping Great uh, fashion. Scene. But also the bridges out of this take people out of the city, and but also leveling its social structures, yanking the rich from their penthouses and everyone starting with a level playing field. And he threatens all of this with a nuclear bomb and a big comic book villain plot, but it also feels like it could really happen as much of the Nolan 
Nolan Batman universe does. The movie introduces Anne Hathaway as Selena Kyle, someone who understands the dual nature of our mm-hmm. personalities, maybe almost as much as Bruce, and John Blake, an orphan cop trying to do the right thing, much like um, a young Bruce Wayne. Both of these characters combined might offer an out for Bruce Wayne and Batman, respectively. With the Dark Knight trilogy, Nolan upended the superhero film. He gave us something real, something deep, something we can sink our teeth into and challenge the way we look at the world, and that's not something we often see from movies about guys wearing capes. I love the Bane character. I thought it was a really underrated character. Like, people flipped out about the Joker and the one before it, and as they should have, but this, I I feel like he didn't get enough credit for being awesome. That's because you couldn't understand anything. And it was too loud. I couldn't understand a thing he said. (laughs) No one cared who I was till I put on the mask. If I pull that off, will you die? It would be extremely painful. You're a big guy. For you. I wanted to hear, I thought it'd be awesome if he was like, he had these really lame comebacks with that like. (laughs) One-liners. You better check yourself before you wreck yourself. (laughs) Which by the way, people at home, Lance brought a large wine glass just to do this imitation today. He also drank a whole bunch of wine right before doing (laughs) (laughs) it. Snitches get stitches, Gibby. Talk to the hand. Uh, I do think he's kind of underrated too, uh, but it's not really underrated. It's really just that Joker got so much attention. Yeah, he's um, a big part of it. But Bane brings something new and is a unique new villain. They, if they had just rehashed, like a lot of people were wanting like the Riddler or someone like that, yeah. which would have felt more of the same. It wouldn't have worked. It was certain mm-hmm. Batman characters worked better with this trilogy than others. Yeah. Like I don't think you could have done Poison Ivy. I think no, Iceman would have been a tough one. Yeah, so, I mean. Mr. Freeze. Iceman. Iceman. Yeah. <laughs> From Top Gun. Uh-huh. <laughs> Val Kilmer is attacking. Yeah. Yeah. I, will, I, I was just going to call him Ice, but I didn't think you guys would know I was talking about Iceman. It drives me crazy that when like a, a terrible movie comes out, I get 20 of them, four of them. But then when a good movie comes out, I only get three. Right. Like I wanted I wanted this. Like my only complaint about this movie is that it had to end. And yeah. that, I hate that. Like I wish they could have kept going with well, these. Also, I would have loved he to sets up a whole new know, story at the end right. that should have kept going. Do you guys wish that they'd made a Robin one? No. Well, no. I, I didn't want Bruce Wayne to. I didn't, I don't, I didn't want to see Joseph Gordon-Levitt as Batman. That didn't really work to me. I would watch that. I wanted to keep seeing Christian Bale's Batman, and I wanted to see where they went with it because it was so grounded and so interesting. Mm-hmm. Well, it was grounded until this movie. I know Hudson said this is realistic, but there's this is the most unrealistic of the three of them by far. What's right, unrealistic? But, Compare I mean, it to Thor Ragnarok. Yeah, and then well, tell me again how this is unrealistic. Right, well, okay, okay. So my problem is Thor Ragnarok obviously is unrealistic because the first two Thors are completely unrealistic. Yeah, I didn't see that. But these two, the first one begins in Dark Knight. Like you're watching, you're like, okay, I could see all of this happening. And then in this film, the whole last 30 minutes, none of this would happen in, in reality. That, there's part? that whole, but, okay, that scene where everybody walks out on the ice and then Batman, who had just had his bat broken, been back for 25 minutes, takes the time to light up. Uh, oh, it's, light up I know, it's really funny. There. The 25 minutes in the movie is, not, is, is a longer period of time it's not no no it's the same day like he came back that day. it would have well, it would have been awesome for like just this real time watching him try to paint the gasoline or whatever the yeah. flammable substance on the side of the yeah. bridge just laboriously yeah. like oh. then they, they're like being a, a whole that automatically the shoots the outline or he's something. got people that do well, that for him. Yeah. i think what you're talking about though it's like yes there are different levels of realistic and i don't think the the lack of realism you're talking about is absent in the first two films either i mean if you look at that whole yeah. sequence about the joker and how he like takes down that 
that armored car with uh, oh, with Harvey awesome. Dent in it. It is, but it's insane. Like it doesn't really make any sense in that regard. That's true of any action film. I think. I think the. I think what you're talking about is a little bit different. The, the one thing that's interesting about this film to me too is supposedly had Heath Ledger not died, he would have been in this, and they, they were supposedly going to do this really cool thing where the Joker plays into this somewhat. But I've never really heard what all it was. I all I read was that he would have done the scarecrow role in this, which was the guy presiding over whether people lived or died. Your guilt has been determined. This is merely a sentencing hearing. Now what will it be? Death or exile? Frank, if you think we're going out onto that ice willingly, you have another thing coming. Death, then. Looks that way. Very well. Death! <laughs> By exile. So he ran the courts. Oh, I think that would have made Jerry more again. sense. That would have been yeah. really cool. But I could be wrong about that. Not only then, when Gotham is in ashes, you have my permission to die. Thanks, Bane. Great segment, Hudson. <laughs> <laughs> oh, are we on to number one? Number one. Number one, number three is Jordan. Oh, man. So we've been talking about all these like franchise series, and you guys are talking about how many movies. Well, <laughs> mine is part three of a 25-film series. <laughs> and continued on in TV, right? There was a TV show. I, That's I awesome, because we can talk about it on our 27th season <laughs> along with 27 <laughs> dresses <Best> 27 <laughs> oh which is jordan this part three is from 1963 and it is called the new tale of zatoichi and i first started watching these movies i haven't seen all 25 yet because i'm trying to take my time and really soak it in but i started watching these movies a year or two ago and i've never seen movies quite like this that they're, they're just really powerful and quiet and they're okay? and the reason no i <laughs> really love this movie right so now. much it's about a blind yakuza swordsman who who's sort of left his gang he's wandering also and, a masseuse and a, yes and a masseuse so he he goes and stays in these like inns and makes a little money doing masseuse stuff and drinks some sake and <laughs> and hangs out and the the first three films really do i think work as a as a powerful trilogy and the, and the third one i think is my favorite it's the first one in color I think he's my favorite character, maybe of all time. He's kind and sweet and generous and gentle and a total badass with a sword. And so this one, he goes back to where he's from. He's killed a number of people <laughs> that people did not want him to kill. And he feels Some bad, bad about guys. It. He does. He doesn't want to kill people. Right. <laughs> um, but he. Neither do I. Some of these grudges follow him back home, and he's reunited with his master who taught him swordsmanship a bunch of other stuff happens um, there's, a, there's a band of robbers there's, a, there's actually kind of a lot that goes on in this movie that i don't want are you to sure explain. you're not getting this confused with one of the other 24 films <laughs> what makes it a great part three if you're looking at the first three zatoichi movies as a trilogy which i'm assuming before the fourth one was made it would have been a trilogy it, it was exactly that oh, yeah. it ties it up but not not in a way that it's dependent on the other films. I saw this one third. Lance, I believe you watched this one without seeing the first two. Correct. So 24 oh. years ago? Mm-hmm. Pretty much one a year. Uh, and I think it, I think it, I, I imagine it would totally stand on its own. It, it, it does. Um, it, you didn't have to see the first two. I mean, there were certain little references, I think, that I probably would have understood yeah. better if I'd seen the first two. It, it's just a, it's a masterfully made movie because the character's so interesting. We're so used to these swordsmen, 
like badass movies where he's just he's just you know he's just a badass all the time and that's not Zatoichi. He's obviously a, a reluctant warrior. It's beautifully shot. It it is. I, so I I watched this film last week and I kept finding these moments of unintentional hilarity in it. <laughs> so first off, they they keep referring to him as a masseur, and I thought, oh, that must be some job like back <laughs> yeah. then that like in feudal Japan that I don't know about. It's like, nope, that's a dude who gives massages. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. he's totally. a massage therapist, and not just that, but the juxtaposition of it in one scene he's slaying a bunch of people with a sword and the next scene he's rubbing a dude's shoulders Mm -hmm. was so funny and weird and it's not just that he's kind of creepy when he's doing it too like (laughs) I remember he's giving this guy a massage and he's like I can't believe I get to rub such a strong samurai's shoulders and the guy's like (laughs) but you kind of get the feeling he's making fun of the guy like I couldn't tell if he was being serious oh oh, I think you're right Hudson he's he's ridiculing him because he if I'm remembering correctly it's not a good guy that he's giving a massage to yeah but it's just imagine like there's a scene where James Bond is in this big action scene and then the next one he's like giving a, a dude <laughs> yeah. a rub down like it just it's really funny but that and is weird. what makes Zaduji so fascinating yeah. is he's such a like just friendly like nice like right. laughing and stuff there's and then this, he, ki- he kills people and, this, and blind I mean he seems yeah, yeah. so harmless to these people yeah. and so does he not know it's the bad guy from the oh no I don't think there's anything Zaduji doesn't know he, yeah he's flawless almost except for well, except the fact what he's a, very except what a sunset looks like <laughs> well except that he's was that blind a sh- was that a shot at blind <laughs> people Zaduji no take that Ooh. all blind I'm not touching that one. There's this really funny scene, again, not meant to be funny, where this girl is professing her love to him. And it goes on and on and on. And and he keeps telling her all the terrible things he's Mm -hmm. done. And he just keeps breaking one thing after another to her. It's like, I'm poor. I've killed people. I've been with prostitutes. And she keeps like kind of, it's okay. It's Yeah, that one's okay. And this just goes on. I felt like it went on for 10 minutes. It was so funny. I think that scene is so beautiful. He talks about how his body is broken and he's not good enough for her. Yeah. And she's the sister of his master. Yeah. It's certainly alluded to that they have a forbidden or maybe not forbidden romance when he was a student. Right. Oh man, I love that oh, scene. Also, I think it's so also I have chlamydia. Uh, also gonorrhea. Uh, also, I killed your mom. Uh, also, it was so funny. Also, okay. the actor who plays Zatoichi, I don't know if he understands the difference between being blind and having a seizure. He looks like a lot of the times in these things when he's trying to be, he's trying to act blind and his eyes are like blinking. It's like, does he, does he know that that's not how that I don't know. Um, you don't know how blindness worked in feudal Japan? That's true. I don't. Yeah. I know how it works now, and it doesn't work like that. <laughs> yeah, I enjoyed what I did see of this movie. I haven't finished it yet, mm. but I'll, I'll get there. I think you need to see the whole movie, yeah. much like most movies. You find out he's dead the whole time? <laughs> he sees. No, he just sees dead people. All, yeah. Everybody else is dead. He doesn't see anything. Yeah. But I did find him to be a really fascinating character uh, who made interesting choices. So like, the, the he's in a uh, restaurant where everybody's being robbed. Mm-hmm. He chooses not to fight, even though he could kick their asses, because yeah. he doesn't want anybody to get injured around him. And then later tracks down the guys. And then I'm kind of picturing him as like this very zen type of guy. And then the scene, the massage scene where the guy doesn't pay him mm-hmm. and he picks up like a jar of, I guess it's like spit. Like, I don't know. It looked like chew or something. He like pours mm-hmm. it on the guy's thing because he didn't pay him, mm-hmm. which is so petty and yeah. dumb. But like, I love that about him. Yeah, that yeah. He's not this like he's perfect not above that. zen guy. Yeah. No, I, I, think, I think that's so much of the character to me is that he's heavily flawed and he lists, well, just like Lance was saying, yeah. he lists all his flaws to this woman and 
There's a repeating theme in the first three where he finds romance and then leaves it largely because of kind of how he views himself. Or he obviously has a lot of guilt from being in a gang and, and being on that darker side of feudal Japan. And he, he sort of punishes himself. You don't see characters like that very mm-hmm. often. Right. And so I'm, I'm confused about how you actually felt about this movie. Like, I didn't love it. Really? I, it was okay. I, I, I'm glad I watched it. I, I, uh, I pegged you as more of a Zatoichi guy. Yeah. I didn't dislike it. I, I thought it was okay. I think I found myself a little bored during it. They are quiet. They are. They're, they're very slow. And maybe I was just expecting the wrong thing. I have a little bit of bad blood with this movie because <laughs> uh, so I was trying to go through the entire Criterion collection, which I think I've talked about before on the show, which is like seven or eight hundred movies. And this was like a hundred titles ago. And I was getting close. I had like ten left. Then they released this box set and it's 25 <laughs> movies. It only counts, counts as one line. title. And I was like, you got to be kidding me. It's, like, it's going to take months. And I just at that point, I just stopped with the, they're all like, like 80 or 90 minutes. Oh God, it's 25 movies. Yeah. It's a long time. Ugh. They did make a uh, animated version of this, Zatuichi and Scratchy. Wow! <laughs> did you? I don't... Wow! This is why what Hudson is only has time to watch half the movies, is because he's, he's like, oh, I've, great, I've, I'm just going to write. I would like to this. see the new tale of Don Amici. This is why I'm already regretting doing a season three of this. Uh, this, this <laughs> these types of comments. This kind of BS. <laughs> Gibby, your number one. My number one, number three, is the 2004 Alfonso Cuaron joint, Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban, the third film in the Harry Potter movie series, which we haven't talked about at all on this show, oh, I believe, God. in the past. If we, if we finally made it through all of them, so we don't have to keep doing this. <laughs> So the quick synopsis of the plot of Prisoner of Azkaban. Harry goes back to school and there are forces that try to hurt him and stuff. Everybody knows <laughs> it. <laughs> but why? Why, Kyle? Why pick this as your number one? This actually isn't my favorite in the Harry Potter series, but I feel it is the most important number three ever because it completely changed the tenor of the series. I feel like this is the most number three of the Harry Potter series. <laughs> I'd argue it's the only number three. <laughs> yeah. So the first Harry Potter, first two Harry Potter movies directed by Chris Columbus, they're fine. Uh, they did a good job casting the kids and a good job setting up this world. But to me, the series really doesn't take off until this one. So to prep for this podcast, which none of you guys think I actually did prep, but I, I do. I think you're making it very obvious right now. <laughs> Harry Potter 2 and then Harry <laughs> Potter 3. You realize like that's back- not <laughs> prepping for this show, right? Because those aren't part of the show. Well, 3 is. <laughs> How many movies did you not watch that you could have watched because you were watching parts Ones well, obviously, two. just one because if you take a one for okay, one, yeah, thing, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's not how okay. movies work. Well, They're so. not all the same length. <laughs> yeah, that's very tough. Two, two is really long. So the difference between two and three, just watching them back to back, is pretty amazing. And I like number two just fine, but what Quran does with number three is nothing short of astonishing. Gives the kids cool, cool hip outfits. Yeah, I mean, he actually one of the things that I put in my notes is that he lets the kids, he trusts them to be actors and to be kids. If I don't you know watch that, the first, I don't know what that means. So in the first two, he movies, didn't make them adults, right? Like in the first two movies, where they're adults. In the first, so in the first two movies, every shot of where the kid's talking is like a one shot of the kid or even thing. It's all like cut, edited very finely. But Quran has a handheld camera and lets the kids just act and he trusts them to do what they're hired to do. Does that make sense? I mean, did Chris like, Columbus not trust the kids in the I first? I don't think so. Just judging by the way that he edited. I think he was always like, I don't trust these kids. He doesn't give them anything like really emotional to, to do in this. Series. I mean, the the third one is the first one that really kind of feels like a movie to me. Like yeah. I I like the first two because I mean they're Harry Potter, but God, they are so slow. Like from this from the get go, there's just a, an energy to right. it that wasn't yeah, in the yeah, first yeah. two films. Uh, well, we're talking. I mean, we're talking about Quran a lot in Columbus, but I mean, really, these are Rawlings movies. I mean, and, well, and, no, and I, I don't. I, I kind of. I mean, she she did the story and everything, but I disagree with the filmmaking for sure. But I mean, I, and I get that. And I'm not. I'm not trying to. 
discount the effort that has to go into doing that, but it's all so much controlled by her and, and what she what she put on the page. I mean, really what they were trying to do is just duplicate that in film form. And I, again, I don't mean that as any disrespect. And yeah, you can change the tone of something, but her stories were so good that that was always going to be the mm. impetus of everything. It was never going to be the filmmaker as much defining. I don't think. And again, you're, you're, you're not wrong to say they're a little bit different. Well, but I say I, they're a lot different. Well, I mean, I, I get I, I them back to back, you I, can I, tell. But part I, of that is the nature of the stories, too. I mean, in part it's, three, it's getting, it's starting part to get three darker, gets darker, and darker and grittier. Right. But We're, I mean, I, just from the very first scene, there's a huge difference just in the feel and the pacing and the, the camera work and everything. It's just immediately there's a difference and it's really really noticeable if you watch them within 24 hours of each other yeah fair enough it's weird as i'm looking at harry potter i'm always thinking about rawling though yeah if you know what i mean but i love what i love about these stories is that they always kind of feel like murder mysteries to me where we're given the clues throughout and then at the end it all comes together and she always tricked me and made me feel like i should have seen it coming and then and totally didn't and, and that way she's kind of like this literary magician who's just always pulling things over on you no matter you're how wizard. hard you're paying attention <laughs> and no matter how much you see it coming yeah that's what yeah. i meant <laughs> i know what i said uh this is my favorite harry potter book but each of the movies I felt like got better up until the end. So my, my favorite movie is the last one or the, the, the last combo of two. But I think what I love about this book is it feels the most standalone. Like maybe you could say about the, about the first one, but it's just kind of this contained story. That I agree. It's it, very standalone. That it's not like it is part of the bigger story, but not in the same way that the later books are. I mean, Voldemort's not in this at all. Voldemort. <laughs> right. Just Voldemort. kind of his hand. Oh, Voldemort. <laughs> and, you know, I love a good time travel bit, so I love that yeah, about Yeah, that it. device was kind of uh, cool, how they did all that. Oh, and the introduction of um, old uh, Sirius Black. Sirius yeah, Black and Lupin. Great performance yeah. by... Is that dude's name? Gary. So, I mean, I just want to bring it back to the point that I think that had they not brought in a fresh voice and a fresh director for this third film, I don't know if the series would have continued. I mean, it would have, they would have kept making movies, but I don't think they would have been as monstrously big as they are now because he really expanded the world. Yeah, I don't know if I agree with that. There's no way for I agree us with to that. Know. I mean, I think if Chris Columbus had done them, I, I think it, they would have, it would have gotten right stale pretty yeah, quickly. Because yeah. if you watch 2, 2 is very slow. 2 2. But too, but I, I would argue too is also the weakest book. I mean, I, I think the story is is the weakest of all seven as well. Again, yeah, I, I just yeah. I think these films are more a function of the book than the director. I guess that's my point. Maybe. And again, it's not not to say the director didn't have influence over it. I get that, and he probably did make it better. But I still think this would have been a very loved film that would have kept things going on the same trajectory. My opinion. They just want to talk about. There's a couple of really cool scenes. We talked about the new actors getting added into it with Oldman and Thewlis. There's a scene in a Shrieking Shack at the end where Rickman comes into and just having all three of these giants. Aus- yeah, these British giants in one scene is pretty incredible. He's in this room. Right now! Come on, come on, Peter! Come on, come on and play! Vengeance is sweet. I hope I'd be the one to catch you. Severus. I told Dumbledore you were helping an old friend into the castle, and now, here's the proof. Brilliant, Snape. Once again, you put your keen and penetrating mind to the task, and as usual, come to the wrong conclusion. Now, if you'll excuse us, Remus and I have some unfinished business to attend to. Give me a reason. I beg you. Severus, don't be a fool. He can't help it. It's happy by Serious, now. Serious, be quiet. Quiet yourself, Remus. Oh, listen to you two quarreling like an old married couple. Why don't you run along and play with your chemistry set? I could do it, you know. But why deny the Dementors? They're so longing to see you. 
Do I detect a flicker of fear? Uh, yes. A dementor's kiss. One can only imagine what that must be like to endure. It's said to be nearly unbearable to witness, but I'll do my best. Severus, please. Yeah, I heard they had to shrink them down to get them all in that room. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so ashamed I laughed at that, but I did. Legitimately. <laughs> I think I'm laughing more at the fact that Hudson said it than uh, what he said. Oh, I say pretty much everything that pops into my mind. <laughs> I've noticed. <laughs> All right, Lance, number one. Return of the Jedi, the 1983 film by Richard Marquand, a.k.a. the guy Lucas chose to be his bitch. The capstone <laughs> film of the original Star Wars trilogy tells us the ongoing saga of the Skywalker family as Princess Leia's relationship with a defrosted Han Solo heats up and Luke Skywalker becomes a full-fledged Jedi, facing his father one last time under the watchful eye of the Emperor. All of this is done against the backdrop of a coordinated military effort to destroy the partially rebuilt Death Star before it becomes operational. So this is a film that is such a satisfying conclusion to a trilogy that just kept having to find ways to top itself. By 1983, Star Wars was a fully realized cultural phenomenon and expectations were very high. While no one was really expecting anything from the first film, and the second film was more of a test on whether the first film would be a one-hit wonder, Return of the Jedi represents the point at which the fan base had become the rabid, impossible-to-please group that it is today. So Return of the Jedi was the first film really released in that climate. It's one of those incredibly rare instances where a filmmaker went up against incredible expectations to outdo what he'd done before and did so in a way that was organic and believable. Mm. Disagreeing? Mm-hmm. Fair enough. It's not believable. Oh, I mean, the first like... two are so believable. <laughs> I like Jordan's impression of me much better than your guy's impression of me. <laughs> I don't like it. I don't think it's believable. <laughs> I don't like the Ewoks. They're scary. There are things we know about Star Wars that make it great. It's a great story, great characters, and those are given. But what's going on in the background is just important. I loved that the original trilogy kept taking us to these new, interesting, different-looking places. So the first film is very, you know, hot and desert oriented. The second film is more of a, you know, ice cold space look. And then the third one has more of an earth tone feel to it. With each film, Lucas would not only show us these amazing new places, but he'd set up his story in such a way that it made sense why we were there. And I'd argue that's one area in which he faltered with the later films. In four, five, and six, the story comes first and the settings are just a, a function of those. The later films made it seem like it was the other way around. Like he was trying to really hard to come up with cool places to show us than building the stories around that. This is not true only of the settings, but of characters and other details. Job of the hut and his lair, the land speeders, and finally getting to see the Emperor and all of his twisted glory. Lucas did such a good job of planting seeds for these things earlier in the trilogy that it doesn't feel like he's forcing anything. He's just telling us the natural progression of the story. The film breeds new creativity not only in its settings and characters, but also its storytelling. Halfway through, our story breaks into three separate story threads, with Han and Leia going to the Indoor Moon to disable the Death Star shields, Lando Calrissian in an air assault on the Death Star via the Millennium Falcon, and Luke aboard the Death Star as he faces his father and the Emperor. Jumping between each story as it escalates and everything plays off each other is brilliant, resulting in a payoff that gives us everything we want without it seeming boring and predictable. We enjoy the ride of how we got there so much, it doesn't matter. We always knew exactly where we were going. <laughs> I'm kind of surprised that you, love, that you love this one as much as well, you Well, let me, let me say this. This is a film that's also very much a function of like when I was seeing it. So mm -hmm. this was the first one I saw in the theater. This is one of the very first films I ever saw in a theater. Oh, and is there anything cooler that you've ever seen on screen than the land speeder when you first saw <laughs> it? No, dude, it was mind-boggling. Land, mm. land speeder. And, and cool. so that's still stuck with me. I mean, it, it takes me back to a place. And I, I do hear people who were older at the time who saw it, who reacted to the whole Ewok thing, very much the way I think a lot of people our age reacted to Phantom Menace. Right? I think how much you like this film is a lot to do with how old you are. So I, so I get it. I get how somebody would look at, like, uh, did they just make those little things to make toys out of them? Because <laughs> right. it, it does seem like yeah, yeah. that. Uh, it would have been more believable if you'd gone to, like, Chewie's planet or and it was, like, a bunch of, like, warriors or mm -hmm. something like that. So I, I do think in, in that you're starting 
starting to see where Lucas was slipping a little bit. That's like kind of the first tremors of Lucas kind of going the direction he did later. Yeah. So in that regard, it is kind of interesting. But yeah, for me, I love this movie. I'm right there with you. Although you are wearing a Empire Strikes Back t-shirt <laughs> now, right now. Return of the Jedi one. Uh, Jordan, were you alive when this came out? <laughs> He was two. I don't know what year this came out. 83. Yes, I was two. Thank you, Gibby. Wow, I didn't know people How tall was I, Gibby? <laughs> 18 inches. Uh, have you guys seen this? <laughs> yeah, uh, no, you know. I've roughly 30, 40 times. Yeah. I remember watching this with you guys at the Fox Theater. We went in that summer, and there was one time that was he's, really stupid. He's we're telling like, the story about the theater we saw it in. <laughs> <Yeah>. Keep going. <laughs> we got the whole audience to clap at one really stupid point. Yeah. That was a good story, yeah. Kyle. Which Thanks. point? The re-release? Uh, like Chewie gets out of the big walker thing. Okay. Was it the original or was it with the, the altered ending? What, what, yeah, what would happen is you would be in the theater and people would clap when like famous notable moments happen. Like Kramer moments. Yeah. <laughs> and then, Exactly. And then so we would try and start applause at these really <laughs> mundane, stupid <laughs> points and it worked like the whole we, theater we would keep, start applauding. We keep showing how cool we were at yeah, age 18 no, to 22. Cool. Jordan, you got thoughts on this? Uh, I mean, I... I I can't disagree with any of that. I think I think this movie's brilliant. I I I remember people always complaining about the Ewoks and things, and I never understood it. They're they're fun. Well, it, to me, the reason that sort of worked is because the stormtroopers were a little out of their element. Mm-hmm. Like they were kind of in the wood area. They weren't on. I mean, it's kind of. I mean, yeah. too political it was like a kind of a Vietnam thing it was sure. like they were fighting this more guerrilla war everybody's like oh well stormtroopers were trained soldiers first off let's be honest stormtroopers were kind of stupid um, they could never hit anything with their lasers but this is Lance on forums late at night I know <laughs> first of all are we to believe that the Calrissian family could have yeah no I know it, I don't know again I get the criticism it's just to me I'm, I turn into a little boy when I watch these movies and so I don't care well and it, I think it's a nice counter to how dark like Luke Luke's still mm. very dark in this movie. Well, Luke is like badass in this movie. Yeah. Like when he enters that first in Jabba's Lair, the first time we see him and he's become what he was always going to become, it's awesome. Oh, yeah. It's really cool. Hudson, Great. thoughts on this? No, I mean, you know, it's a Star Wars. Yeah. <laughs> I, mean, I, just, I don't have, I have nothing to add to that conversation. I mean, okay. yeah, I saw it. I loved it. You know, whatever. Right. Cool. All right. To be I mean, fair, I have not revisited it in a while, which is probably why I don't have a lot of strong opinions about it. Gotcha. So my number one, number three, as much as I love the current superhero trend and I could honestly disappear into the Marvel Cinematic Universe all day, I'd trade in all of those CGI spectacles for a stuntman in a tank every time. Or a stuntman in a plane or a blimp or a motorcycle or a train or a boat. There is no cinematic experience that makes me as giddy as Steven Spielberg directing an action scene, except Steven Spielberg directing Harrison Ford in an action scene, which brings me to my favorite part three of all time, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. With Ragnarok... <laughs> What's that? That was Jordan. With Ragnarok, we talked about a part three that's speaking out of his I know who it was. I just don't <laughs> yeah. know why he did that. With Ragnarok, we talked about a part three that totally rebooted the franchise. With Dark Knight Rises, we talked about a part three that wrapped up one long storyline. But with Last Crusade, the filmmakers went back to what worked best in the first film. An archaeologist traveling around the world, following clues to track down an ancient mythical item, in this case, the Holy Grail, fighting Nazis, racing against a rival team, verbally sparring and smooching with a female lead, teaming up with wacky sidekicks, facing creepy crawlies, and creating some of the best old school action scenes ever put on film. But Last Crusade has its own flavor to the trilogy as well, bringing in Sean Connery, uh, who makes Harrison Ford feel small, apparently. <laughs> 
uh, is Indiana's dad and also learning more about his past in an amazing 15 minute opening sequence. We learned why he got into archaeology, where he got his hat, why he's afraid of snakes and where he got his scar. It's a very all in, happened in one day. Yeah, influential day for him. <laughs> Last Crusade came out in 1989 and I was in sixth grade and my dad had just passed away two years before. Uh, movies became an escape for me and 89 was the height of that escapism with movies like Batman and Back to the Future and Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. But also around that time, film went from being just an escape to being something deeper. Film became a surrogate father to me, gleaming lessons from deeper films like Dead Poet Society, Field of Dreams, and Driving Miss Daisy. So it feels especially poignant that Last Crusade is a father-son story, especially coming full circle when I recently rewatched this with my 15-year-old son and was happy to find that he also loved the movie. There's something so timeless about these films. Uh, part of that comes out of Spielberg and Lucas setting out to recreate the serials they loved growing up, and that's what the Indiana Jones movies are, a love letter to film, to magic, to adventure. It's something that will never age, as if the films themselves have chosen wisely to drink from the Holy Grail. Hmm. My favorite part of this movie is uh, towards the end when the guy picks the wrong grail and it turns him into Doc Brown from Back to the Future. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I, I love this movie too, Hudson. I think it, it, it goes back to something I was saying earlier about um, Exorcist and Die Hard where it's this great blend of the old and the new. It doesn't yeah. keep trying to do the same thing over again, but it also expands and we're looking for a new thing. We're meeting this great character and this father, which a lot of times you introduce a new character to a film and it feels kind of forced. I'm like, we just needed to have another person in. This is a character you don't only really love. You're like, oh, why did we not see him before? Like, this mm -hmm. is this is great. Lucas's idea for this film originally was he wanted it to be in a haunted castle. It's so bad. And like, you, you get this question sometimes, like if you could be on any movie set or anywhere in film history, where would you be? In my place, what I would want to be in that meeting, watching <laughs> Lucas say that and watching Spielberg and Harrison Ford try to politely. Like, uh, what if we? What yeah. if we went down a different route? Right, exactly. We could put a castle in it. Yeah. What I don't know. That, I don't even know what. The, what does that mean? What? Like what? Dude, who the hell knows? So he he had, Lucas had gone bat <laughs> insane by this point. This was he had gone full Lucas yeah. by now, but nobody really knew it yet because he wasn't really he hadn't done the you know the next Star Wars films were ten years away. But he just he he'd lost it, and so and like my thing too is it's like I don't know if he wasn't on set during the making of the first two or if he never saw them, but. <laughs> Like, what my recollection of Indiana Jones is that he was an archaeologist and not like a paranormal investigator. But oh, no, that's because you haven't seen the fourth one. Oh, God. I don't want to <laughs> talk about that. But what's interesting is the haunted castle, he was just so insistent on having a haunted castle that the whole the whole scene, the, the whole segment where they go to that castle, uh-huh. it was because he was just demanding it. It was like their way of placating him. But I right. love that sequence. It's a great it's sequence. Yeah. But notice the castle's not haunted. Well, that, that just, switching um, fireplace... Would yeah, totally yeah. be in a haunted right, castle. Right. right, yeah. So I think that was Spielberg's way of just, it's so funny to imagine Spielberg. It's like, it's already hard enough to make a movie. I now have to get this idiot to like stop trying to destroy <laughs> it. Yeah. I don't know. It's but, like that story of him with Back to the Future when the studio executive wanted to name it like a boy from Mars or something like that. And yeah. he's like, oh, that's a good joke. Yeah, he kind of joked uh, yeah. it away. He had to do know. that with George Lucas. There are a couple of negatives to this film. One of them is a, a, the casting of the, the female lead, who I think is a fairly weak actress, but yeah. also the the main like um what's his name donovan mm -hmm. who's also a pretty weak actor i don't know how you feel about his performance i didn't I, none of these performances really bothered me i mean i see i, I think i think connery's the problem with this movie what oh i can't stand him in this movie oh what? he's fantastic i've got to yeah. i've got to hear some explanation yeah, i don't i don't really have an explanation that's how i felt the whole time he just loses me I, I, maybe it's because i grew up watching so much james bond that i like can't see him playing any other character i i have a hard time with connery in any other movie 
movie other than Red October. So this is a Connery problem, not an Indiana Jones it might, problem. It might be, but it makes me, I think, somehow like Indiana Jones less, like the Ford's character less in this movie. Like, it's another side of Indiana Jones that I don't like as much because he's dealing with Connery as his father. Oh, I, I, I love the back and forth between them. I think some of it's, I think some of it's fun. And it but adds that an might extra be part of the problem for me, too, is that it's a little bit too much fun. Too fun. But it adds an extra level to Harrison Ford. Of, you, you don't get the idea that he's trying to impress people very often, and he's trying to win his father's affection. It makes a really unique look at Indiana Jones. I agree. I love the idea of that. You I just, just didn't it, like, like if it, it had been somebody that, other than Connery, I think I could have bought it a little bit more. I just have a really hard time time behind Connery in that. My only other negative on this is that Sala and Brody kind of come off kind of bumbling in this and they kind of play him for laughs whether it, like in the first movie I felt like they were both intelligent and added something to, mm-hmm. to the to the story. This is definitely a, a funner Indiana Jones than Raiders yeah. of the Lost Ark. Like it's not as there's a and, and that movie's fun too but it, there was a there was a definite serious tone to that film that is not in this one. There yeah. are definitely moments that are just pure comedy in this. Well I think they, they took the it's almost it's weird to me that people love this movie so much. So many people have a distaste for Temple of Doom which I love in its darkness, but it's also very goofy. So it's like they took mm-hmm. all the goofiness from Temple of Doom and put it into Last Crusade instead of taking what I loved, the other stuff that I loved so much about Temple of Doom that they kind of left there and they brought all this goofiness and it, it just was a lot harder to take seriously, which like huh. Raiders, I feel like you can really take pretty seriously. Mm-hmm. Lance, can you do the, the map line? Where are these missing pages? This map, we must have these pages back. <laughs> There's a line in this that uh, it sounds like he's singing a song if you listen to it the wrong, the wrong way. We have to play that clip. Where are these missing pages? This map. We must have these pages back. It takes me out of it every time. Every time I hear it. (laughs) Where are these missing pages? This map. We must have these pages back. (laughs) Oh, is that it? Hey, we did a whole whole show. We did it. How about that? Look at that. Gibby, did you not have any more thoughts on uh, Last Crusade there? Just wanted to echo it. I loved this movie. I saw it when I was 12 years old. What theater did you see it in? (laughs) Hmm. It was a three screen. I, don't, I didn't really. Yeah, we didn't really um, do you guys remember? I think we talked about this during the Terminator Two when there would always be the scene at the Circuit City where they would play loud. Oh, and yeah. Yeah. Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade <laughs> had had one of those two that boat scene when it gets chopped uh, yeah. up. Yeah. I remember seeing oh, that yeah. multiple yeah. times yeah. in the yeah. Circuit cool. City. All right, what are you guys excited about? Uh, I'm reading oh, a book man. right now called Autonomy, which is about the history of the and current development of the driverless car. Oh, cool! Which is very interesting. Terrifying. How close are we? Pretty close. Yeah, very seems close. like it. It's going to be awesome, too. Yeah. I don't think people realize what a big, amazing deal that's going to yeah, be. Yeah, for real. Oh, I'll be able to watch all the, all your movies mm-hmm. on my just, commute now. Yeah. Well, the idea is that people won't even own cars anymore. Right. Just you order one, you it shows up. You just order a car. You, you just somewhere. have a year pass to hop that's in a car. That's good for my business. <laughs> Insurance, in case yeah. you're wondering. Yeah. Anybody else got something? I'm excited about doing this. Podcast? Being back with you guys, yeah. Well, they just heard from us last week, so. What? I mean, if you're listening to these, and oh, you, like right. if you just discovered us and you were, you know, right, and you're waiting a week between listening <laughs> to these, <laughs> I'm excited about an app called uh, Scribed, S C R I B D. Uh, it's unlimited audiobooks and ebooks for eight ninety nine a month, which sounds like we're sponsored. We're not. Sure does. We should get one of those though. A sponsor yeah. or an Reach- ebook. <laughs> Both. <laughs> so yeah, I've been flying through some audiobooks uh, thanks to this app, which is pretty great. Way to go. Cool. I'm real excited about this book that I just read that Hudson uh, randomly sent to me that is by Jay and Mark Duplass called Like Brothers. I just finished the other day. And it was just a I don't I don't love all, everything they do. Uh, I like a lot of what they do. 
I haven't seen also oh, another lot of what they do, but uh, the book is just really honest and fascinating and I loved it. Inspiring. They're just really interesting, smart, I think, honest dudes. And it's that's refreshing yeah. when when reading a book about someone's success. I, I don't think they I don't think they play it up. I think they really just kind of tell you. Yeah, it's a little bit of a how to in terms of navigating indie film in Hollywood, and then also just collaborating and the way that they are so honest with each other and transparent with each other and um, and weird. In, they're, in they're very, very way, weird yeah, together. Yeah. Very close brothers. Yeah. All right. All right. That's it. Part three is done. Hey there, partners. Join us next week as we fight over the good, the bad, the ugly, the weird, the young, the slow, the kid, the topo, the tassels, the train, and for some reason, the Rango. It's our favorite westerns. Yee-haw! Citizens of Gotham, this is Bane. Let us know how your list differs at at fightaboutfilm on Facebook and Twitter. Or email us at fightaboutfilm at gmail.com. Please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes. Four Friends Fight About Film is produced by the brothers Rand Atlanta, Georgia. This episode was recorded and edited by Jordan Noel. Do you feel in control?
in here, right? Right. Leaving exactly one gallon of empty space, right? Yeah. A full five gallons here, right? Right. You pour one gallon out of five gallons into there, we have exactly four, four gallons, gallons in there. Yes. Pour it in there. Come on. Come on. Don't, don't spill it. Good, good, good. Oh, exactly McClane. four gallons. You did it, McLean. Put it on the bed. <laughs> Get it down there. Congratulations, you're still alive.